that's what history and the liberal arts do in uh, as you get older you change your perspective on them and you end up asking far far more questions of yourself nothing that you do ever becomes complete but you become resigned to that because you realize that the lack of completion opens up new avenues for you to explore hello and welcome to unfinished unpublished with me emily anderson My guest this week is the historian Dr Peter Edwards. From a Polish-Welsh background, Pete was born in Liverpool and grew up in Birmingham. He studied history at the University of Leeds, where he completed his PhD research. Pete is a brilliant teacher and has taught in a real variety of settings. These include a secondary school in Liverpool, Wakefield College, a drop-in centre for homeless people, Greenhead Sixth Form College in Huddersfield and Wakefield Prison. At the latter, he set up the education provision on the Close Supervision Centre for the most dangerous offenders in the high security estate. Pete currently works in admissions at the University of Leeds Doctoral College, but the role he had just before that is the role he's here to talk about today, and it's also his unfinished project. Pete took voluntary severance pay to leave Greenhead College in 2015, using the funds to establish his very own company called Roundhouse History Tours. In the process, he became one of less than 100 badged guides in the International Guild of Battlefield Guides. As you'll hear from our conversation, Pete's history tours took clients all over the place, from the European continent to Wales and Northern England. I've never met the majority of guests that I have on this podcast, but I'm in the extremely fortunate position of having had Pete as my A-level history teacher. Generally speaking, I try not to go overboard with gushing in these episode introductions, But if I say that Pete is one of those special teachers who you never forget, I really hope that everyone listening will know what I mean, because having a truly inspirational teacher like that is an experience that stays with you and that stays valuable forever. It was with Pete that I first learned about the First World War, which I later went on to do a PhD on, and it was Pete who suggested which university I might apply to. Hearing from him again and hearing his enthusiasm and flair for his subject was revelatory and an absolute delight. In our conversation, he tells me about sites that he takes his clients to with incredibly rich and often surprising layers of history. He tells alternative histories of well-known historical sites, and he talks about why historians should go outside more. All that it remains for me to say is that I'm now recruiting guests for series two of this podcast. So if you have an unfinished or unpublished project that you'd like to talk about, you can email me at unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. So I want to start off by asking you about Roundhouse History Tours, which you set up after leaving Greenhead Sixth Form College, where you taught. Could you explain why you wanted to do history tours in particular? Had you always kind of fancied doing that? The history history trips have been quite an important part of the job that I'd done at Greenhead. And it had been developing as an idea for quite a few years. And... It was when the opportunity to take voluntary severance came up and I was pretty certain that I'd reached a point in teaching where over 25 years I changed a fair bit, but teaching had changed more than I had and probably more than I was prepared to change. So I thought that I'd use I'd use the teaching skills that I'd got and the knowledge that I'd got from 
running trips and the enjoyment I got from running trips as well to try and make a living out of it. It was also a way of combining my love of history with a love of being outdoors. In it's about 2013, I'd been on a, a day's drawing course mm-hmm. up in, in Rydale and I was driving back to Leeds. Uh, it was a lovely kind of atmospheric, overcast, really <laughs> co- cold, cold day. And I was driving back through Coverdale and I stopped just as the light was going, really, to just have a, a look around. And I thought, I really want to be able to work out here. You know, if I can Mm. find any kind of excuse to be working in this kind of environment instead of back in a classroom following the the same exam routine until I retire, then that would be a great thing. It's really interesting that you said that about wanting to work outdoors because I remember I went on one of your history trips to Berlin and I do remember you marching us round quite a lot outside, I think partly to wear us out. <laughs> but you, there was a lot of fresh air involved. Yeah, I mean, certainly with uh, with sixth form groups, the uh, that, that, was, that was an idea that I inherited from Fanny Walshaw, who mm. used to be the second in the department. And it was her her great idea that with six formers if you want a reasonably quiet night then you need to get them out the front door at eight o'clock in the morning and keep them moving keep them moving till 10 at night and then you'll uh, you, you'll have a reasonable night's sleep after about one o'clock but but equally you know if you're if you're in a place like berlin you know you don't want to be sitting indoors you want to be out in the city and looking looking at what's there to be looked at and also at that kind of age at 17 18 you want to be picking up contact with sites that you'll go back to and visit maybe later on mm-hmm. so the idea was to just expose you to as much as possible in the short time that we had i mean you we i think we're only in berlin for about three days if that yeah yeah before that it was the battlefields wasn't it i think yeah yeah you have done tours in lots of different places since starting up Roundhouse History. Could you give a bit of an overview of the different places that you went with clients? Yeah, sure. Uh, north of England, North Wales, Germany, Belgium, France and Poland. So presumably that requires vast amounts of research on your part. A lot of it was based around what I'd been teaching as okay. a modern historian for for decades the really interesting research came out of the tours around Yorkshire and North Wales where Mm. I was able to go back into early medieval and particularly with um, York and the Dales go Mm. back to the Roman period as well and it was that that was really really good stuff to do I'd always had a quite a soft spot for the early medieval period and it Mm. gave me an excuse to just indulge my own (laughs) historical interests which was it, was, it was just an absolute pleasure. But in terms of the research, it's, it, it's a good point because when I told people that I was running historical tours for a living, they'd always say, oh, that's great. You know, you're going to be outside all the time mm. doing, doing history. But actually, you're not. The majority of your time is spent doing lots and lots of planning and an awful lot of really run-of-the-mill contingency planning and administrative planning to make sure that your clients are looked after, that transport works, that there are hotels, Mm. that there's food, 
there's insurance in place, all of those things. And you spend weeks and weeks doing that mm-hmm. before you actually do a tour, mm. which I, I knew I was going to be going into that because I was mm. aware of, of, of how much was required to run run the Berlin trip but it, it really does take a lot and also to get to get a new tour up and running you have to go out and do dry runs you have to make sure that you're absolutely on top of your game with your raw material that everything that you've read and you've prepared actually ties in with what's on the ground and also that there's a logical thread there's a logical sequence to the different mm. venues that you're taking your clients to even if it's not chronologically logical that there's some kind of thematic idea tying it all together Mm -hmm. so you mentioned in an email to me that you ran tours of york telling the story of the north south divide via the architecture is that one of those narrative threads that you would pin the tour around yeah i mean certainly for for york york was a bit of a I suppose a, a honeypot for for tours. Yeah, there was a steady supply, lots of emails with different groups saying, "Can you take a tour of of, of clients around York?" And it used to irritate me a little. In particularly, tour agencies would say, "I've got a group coming to York. Will you take them around York?" and I get back to them and say, well, yeah, but what do you want me to do with them? (laughs) And in the end, I just developed my my own tour of York, trying to set the city itself within a broader regional and national historical narrative. And that's where the idea of explaining the Northern historical experience came from. (laughs) That and... um, very, very early on in the days of Roundhouse, I was asked by a, a former colleague who's now teaching at York University to go and speak to some predominantly Far Eastern, but also Middle Eastern students about mm-hmm. the North and York and where they are. Mm-hmm. A lot of my my, my tour of, of York grew out of the ideas that came from that because I was really disheartened to be sitting outside one of the uh, the cafes in York University campus and I saw this bus go past with London written on the front of it <laughs> and mm. I thought you know this is this is so disappointing that mm. there are students who are in a spectacular medieval city surrounded by the most incredible historical sites the most beautiful landscape that England has to offer an amazing coastline as well as well as, mm. as well as moors and dales, and they've got a bus that takes them straight to another great big city that they're probably really familiar with. It got me thinking along the lines of how much the history of Britain has been skewed by this kind of focus on the the golden triangle of London, Oxford, mm. and Cambridge. Mm. I also had this idea that developing the view that history is always written by the victors. Well, the victors in the story of England, as well as the story of Britain, is London and the South East. And I wanted to try and present a, a history of England particularly, but also the British Isles from a Northern English perspective and emphasise the different historical experience that the North had had from really the Roman occupation right the way through to the present day. And York's a brilliant place because 
the archaeology and the surviving buildings there allow you to pick on on buildings from every major epoch across that um, uh, across that expanse of time. That's where that that came from. I also got to the point of um, of turning down tours of York if the group didn't seem particularly interesting is the wrong word, but flexible. Uh, yeah, I mean, on one occasion, I had a, a Spanish tour agency get in touch with me and they were insistent that I take their clients round York in a bus at nine o'clock in the morning. And it didn't seem to matter what I said to them about, you're going to pay me very handsomely for a couple of hours of sitting mm. in a traffic jam on on Lehman Bridge. Mm. Uh, they just wouldn't budge. And that there was a lot of um, confusion in the tourist industry about what places like York had to offer. Mm. On another occasion, which really saddened me as well, there were a couple of American tourists in the uh, museum gardens who were sort of struggling to orientate themselves with a guidebook. Mm-hmm. I just came up to them chatting, saying, you know, where are you from? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And uh, when they said well, where they were from in the States, they said, oh, great. So where are you staying? And mm-hmm. they said, London. And I said, oh, right. But how long are you in York for? They said, oh, we've just come up for the day. They, they, told us, they told us at a hotel in London that we could do York in a day. And it was that kind of attitude in the um, English tourist industry that really made me start feeling, well, you know, sod you lot. I'm going to start <laughs> ploughing my own furrow and saying, this is northern history and this is what you're getting here. And you're yeah. getting a different story of England. It's not the Union Jack biscuit tins and red telephone boxes. When you come up here, you're going to get serious stuff and I'm going to engage you and I'm not going to patronise you. And I felt you know, very, very strongly that there ought to be far, far more of an effort by the regional tourist boards to get people out of London and to start getting pictures of the dales of the great medieval cities of all kinds of other places outside of London in the arrivals lounge in Heathrow. Mm. Because when when you arrive at you know, Heathrow and Gatwick, you're presented with images of Houses of Parliament, mm. Guardsmen, Buckingham Palace. Well, you know, that's a tiny, tiny proportion of what Britain yeah. has to offer. And, and yeah. I felt that in a lot of the work I was doing, I felt almost as though I was an evangelist sort of preaching against this and saying, you know, come out, come out of areas. And a lot of my clients would actually, would support me in this view. Once they actually left the Golden Triangle and dared to venture a little further north than Stratford-on-Avon and start learning that there was an awful lot more to the story of Britain than what's presented to them. So what are some of your favourite sites, either in York or elsewhere, for telling that alternative story? The sites I use in York are the standard ones. I would meet clients outside the station and Mm -hmm. we'd begin by talking about the pits that were used for burying the cholera victims outside the city walls, which 
allows me to explain to people that although they're in a twee tourist city, you know, this is a this is a place with a hard edge and you're coming to the north and you're having a northern tour and this is going to have a hard edge to it. The Museum Gardens was a great place to really start because you've got references to Rome, uh, the early medieval period, the Anglo-Norse legacy, as well as the role of the monasteries in the north all on one site. You've got the old Yorkshire club just over the road, which was a place where the um, the gentlemen of of Yorkshire used to go and um, and stay for the night if they had to go and take a train down to London because they didn't want to have to lower themselves and go into the city proper, which again was a nice link with a gentry and an industrial aristocracy that tried to distance itself from its roots in Yorkshire and Mm -hmm. tried to kind of gravitate towards London further afield and there's just amazing sights uh, Thornborough Henge in the Vale of Mowbray wonderful it should be it should be a world heritage site you know it should be on the um, on the map as such I love Coverdale simply because in terms of uh, landscape interpretation you can take clients into what at first sight appears to be a wonderful wild scenic dale but actually is a post-industrial landscape and unpicking that and the way the dale changes as the altitude changes and the land use changes and you link it into the history it's fantastic place i also did a lot of work around towton as well initially for the battlefield but again i used the wars of the roses as a conflict between north and south to reinforce this theme uh, throughout my tours equally langstrothsdale if you just go up to the the north of kettlewell is Mm a superb place for physical geography kettlewell in itself a brilliant place to take clients because Mm -hmm. They see it as this twee little Dales village Mm. rather than a place that nearly died at the end of the 18th century and was saved from becoming a deserted village Mm. by the discovery of lead and uh, and, and lead mining. And Greenhow is a brilliant place as well. The only mining village in the Dales because we think of Yorkshire as a place of pit villages. Mm. But again, having a pit village in the Dales is great. Mm. Uh, <laughs> equally, up on the moors, above Craco, it's fantastic because you're taking people around an area that um, that used to have coal mines on it. Mm. Uh, the last thing they'd expect in, in that part of the world. It was just really really rewarding and joyful unpacking the landscape and the social history Mm. of places with people from other countries who had no idea that Mm. places like Yorkshire existed there was a Harvard academic who uh, uh, took around the Dales on a bike and Mm. he spent about quarter of an hour on a a bridge over the River Wharf Mm. uh, in Burnsall he was, you know, it's a bridge that I don't know how many thousands of times I've crossed that bridge and never really gave it any thought. And then you see how somebody who's incredibly experienced as a traveller 
responds to responds to it it really makes you reassess the value of what's on your own doorstep mm. taking people up to ribblehead mm. was superb because yeah. you've got victorian engineering you've got the remains of a navi camp one of the largest navi camps in europe was based there and you've also got the remnants of a viking farmstead as well as um, if you go out further onto the moor you've got the remnants of ancient historical mining it's brilliant there's just no end to uh, oh and you're overlooked by an iron age fortress as well you you just it doesn't stop it's superb stuff and that combination of different eras different sites um landscape interpretation archaeology sounds to me quite innovative do you think that there are things that like more more conventional academic history could learn from the practice of of tours and place-based history absolutely for a start, I think the multidisciplinary approach is yeah. something that is really, really enriching in the study of the past. I was quite impressed by many, many years ago, Leicester University combining history and archaeology in a really creative okay. way. And I've often said that if I had the choice of doing my undergraduate degree again I would look to try and combine archaeology Mm. with history but I think certainly just taking students outside into the outdoors is a superb thing to do for historians because Mm. so much of history is understandably focused in archives and in libraries but if you actually go and see the places where the events happen it gives you a different perspective And it contributes massively to the wealth of the mental imagery that you as a student and as a teacher Mm. build around your subject. The outdoors is a fantastic place to teach and learn. I think particularly at university level, there's a fear of taking students outside because they're young adults who are just interest supposedly just interested in having a good time and going and and drinking and all the rest of it yeah but actually if you look at the subjects that do field work you know they 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 do some damn hard work in between going to the pub and there's no reason (laughs) there's no reason why historians shouldn't be able to do the same but I think history itself has an awful long way to go I, I remember at a postgrad research symposia in Leeds where you would present your research findings chronologically. So all the medievalists would go first. And as soon as the last medievalist had spoken, all the medievalists stood up and left because for them, modern history was just an irrelevance. It always bewildered me how you could think about your discipline in such a narrow narrow way i mean i'm i suppose if i claim to be a trained historian i'm a trained modernist Mm. but i've always been really really interested in medieval early medieval and ancient history because i'm a historian and i don't see how you could claim for a moment that studying another period or, or, or era can impoverish you intellectually academically or more importantly, impoverish you as a teacher. This 
interdisciplinary and uh, and multi-year approach has an awful lot to offer and certainly it caused me to reassess an awful lot about the way uh, I thought of modern history mm. by looking at longer term established trends but yeah, I suppose I've always been inclined to think as a bit of a structuralist so that's that, that's <laughs> probably why but it, it, it re- I found it a really really enriching experience and the, mm. the other thing that became very very clear to me as well and, and I will kind of make a, a I suppose a political point here mm. is where, when I was learning about the, the history of the Dales there was some fantastic books produced on the history of the Dales that came out of a series of evening classes that were run at Leeds University for primarily mature students okay. and their research findings about Nidderdale were all published and they're brilliant they stand mm. as a superb testimony to as to what can be done with mature students in a non-threatening university environment working on what's around them and they produced it's wonderful research and it's an absolute tragedy that the opportunities for this no longer seem to be around that mm. so much that does happen has to have measured outcomes and how mature learners have to be patronized by mm. market orientated questionnaires when they're learning and when they're researching it, it's so much of intellectual freedom academic freedom the freedom to research and to develop ideas on an informal basis has really been stifled by the marketization of mm. of education and and of, of fe and he particularly i feel mm. uh, and it's a real shame that um, we don't have the standard of work being produced by mature students that was say 30 to 40 years ago I do want to ask you about teaching actually just briefly since we're on the topic because I remember you as being a really brilliant teacher but obviously you've got an awful lot out of running the history tours as well so are you quite glad that you did decide to change careers in the end well the history tours themselves are really teaching in Mm. a different environment they're teaching in an environment that was one that I really liked it was one that I suppose ultimately I chose in that you know my website would say this is where I go to if you're interested get in touch and therefore I was dictating the syllabus if you like sure all the teaching experience flowed into that and it never really it never really stops. It's it's all teaching in a different environment. Mm. I kept tutoring as well to keep money flowing okay. in. Yeah. It never left me, although I do find the response to a syllabus for a tutee quite irksome uh, mm. compared to the, the, the freedom of developing my own ideas doing history tours. And talking of teaching in different settings, you mentioned that earlier in your career, you also worked at Wakefield Prison, setting up education for people who had committed some very serious offences. Could I ask just briefly about the process of doing that and what it was like? Yeah, um, the education provision on main location was 
as you would expect in a prison, which is a daft thing to say because most people yeah. haven't got a clue what it is. Uh, it was a series of secure classrooms where we attempted to provide an educational experience as close to the outside world as was possible for a whole number of different reasons. Uh, a lot of them educational, a lot of them to really look at how prisoners were responding to a different environment, to life on the wings and in official prison life. The work that I got involved with on what was then called the Close Supervision Centres which was a part of the high security estate for really very serious offenders and people who'd committed quite serious offences inside prison Mm -hmm. was really quite experimental in that I was dealing with people who were deemed to have reached the bottom and not really having anywhere else to go. I would initially not even teach, just engage in conversation for as many weeks, months or years as it took to then coax an individual into a classroom. And there was a special classroom, secure classroom provided and did all kinds of things, I suppose, from obviously basic literacy and numeracy through to Mm -hmm. primarily liberal arts, liberal arts based Mm -hmm. subjects that will cause people to think a bit about Mm -hmm. their situation and their interactions but also microwave cookery, which uh, <laughs> in a through through a through a little hatch in um, in a wall between mm. two secure cells with um, oh plastic plastic implements and uh, mm. all that kind of thing. But yeah, it, it was it was really interesting, really interesting stuff, and it was it was the product of some really forward-thinking and dynamic individuals in the prison service at a higher level in the high security estate where it was recognised that something had to be done with the most disruptive individuals. But also from from the governor who was then running the special unit at at Wakefield, who was a, a man who was really, really forward thinking and was also in charge of the punishment block. And he had a great attitude towards education. His view was that uh, because people ended up either on a special unit or on the punishment block, that was surely an indication that they actually required educational input. Mm. And yeah, it was really forward thinking. And he had a, a senior officer who thought the same way and really, really good staff as well and really accommodating staff who were prepared to, if you like, give us liberal do-gooding teachers the space mm. to do to do what we thought might be constructive in a very, very constrained and, pot- and potentially quite dangerous environment. So I was really, really lucky to be working there at that time. Although looking at it from the outside, you'd think that very, very minimal progress was made. Actually, in the context of the prisoners that we dealt with, very, very significant Mm. achievements were made by all members of staff there. It wasn't just just the teachers, just 
the probation staff, just the officers. It was everybody. It was a real kind of multidisciplinary approach to dealing with these very, very difficult individuals, Very, some of them very, very ill individuals. Mm. It was a really, really interesting time to be involved with that. And just returning to the tours, and I guess actually some of your your other students, as it were, did you have a favourite kind of group of clients? Yes. People who asked questions, (laughs) people who accepted that there's no black and white in history, that it's all shades of grey, it's complexities. And also clients who were prepared to be pushed intellectually who saying rise to the occasion is patronizing i had a lot of clients who'd say oh i've not really had very much formal education so i don't understand very much but that's never the case the fact that they're inquisitive enough to actually put themselves on a tour definitely shows that they've got a fantastic amount of intellectual raw material and you could really really take people on a great journey historically intellectually academically on a tour you could give them really really challenging ideas historically and just have the time to explain them and particularly when you're explaining this kind of stuff in the open air it's a lot easier to communicate than in a classroom. Also with clients, you have the luxury of being able to sit and have a drink at the end of the day and talk about stuff in a far more relaxed manner and they can let it all settle and they can ask you about it at breakfast the next morning and they can get you on your own as well and ask you the the, the things they think are stupid questions and would be embarrassed Mm -hmm. to ask in front of uh, in front of other members of the group so those kinds of those kinds of clients I'd have to say one of the most surprising groups that uh, I dealt with was a group of German soldiers in Mm -hmm. Belgium taking them around first world war sites the level of understanding of the origins of the First World War amongst that group of men was fantastic. When I began engaging with them about why on earth we were all stood here, why on earth there were Germans buried here, why there were British and Germans fighting, amongst the first responses I got were fear of encirclement. Um, There were references to the Fisher thesis it is brilliant and this was from ordinary soldiers and I just thought you know I'd be really really hard pushed to get that kind of response from A-level history students in Britain let alone you know let alone from a group of soldiers and I I found that really really heartening in fact it was the it was the last tour I did as as roundhouse and I felt it was a really nice way of kind of closing the circle. Yeah. So you mentioned that was your last tour for Roundhouse. Why did you stop doing the tours? It was very simple. It was Brexit. Mm. A sole trader living in the north. I had to do a lot of European work to actually make a living. The The work in Britain would bring in extra income but you can't make a living 
as a historical tour guide, certainly in the north. Mm. And the extra costs that I would incur on the journey from Leeds to the Channel Tunnel added really quite a significant extra cost. But also, uh, it was at the end of 2018 when supposedly we were meant to leave the EU on the 31st of December. And I had absolutely no idea whatsoever what my terms of trade would be in 2019. And I was having to turn down bookings because I didn't know whether I'd be forced to cancel tours because of changing my legal status, the need to get work permits, all the rest of it. And as a sole trader, I couldn't afford to cancel tours. I could afford to cancel maybe one or two and give people their money back in a year, but you can't cancel 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. And as a small business and a sole trader, you have to have a full order book for the following year. Uh, in order to survive and I had nothing that I could be certain about for 2019 and I just thought this is this is impossible to continue with I can't take the financial risk here because otherwise I'm going to end up potentially trying to live on thin air for, for for 2019 it was the logical decision to make and I think with the way that things have started to unfold for people in in my position in in the wake of uh, of first of january this year it was probably the correct decision to make at the time i mean you described that in a very stoical way but given how much you put into roundhouse history tours it must have been very difficult to let it go yeah i mean i i have no i have no option other than to be stoical yeah. i i can't listen to certain people talking on the TV or radio, I have to turn them off. I absolutely seethe when I hear people talking about the sunny uplands because I took the once in a lifetime opportunity of taking my severance pay, sinking it all in a business enterprise that, that then was closed down because of because of brexit uh, and that's not going i'm never going to have that chance again and the time and effort to resuscitate the business if circumstances change is just not an option Re- really into I won't, i'll never come across the money again to be able to be able to do it so yeah, I mean, there are just certain things I, I, I shut out. But at the same time, you know, I, I had four years of of fantastic opportunity. You know, where else can where else can you be gliding down off Malham Moor on a bike <laughs> with snow flurries swirling around you, bit of ice still left on the sides of the road, <laughs> and thinking out. I'm doing this for a living. You know, somebody's paying me for this. That, that's pretty good. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, um, there, there, there are really, you know, really memorable moments mm. and that's great. And I learned an awful lot. I obviously learned the really boring administrative stuff and how to set up a business and bookkeeping and all the rest of it. Um, mm. Engaging with advertising agencies different tourist 
boards and all, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But I also learned a huge amount of history and I had the opportunity to study stuff and go to places that I wouldn't normally have gone to. And there's just so much I want to follow up about loads of different areas of Yorkshire that I went to and stories that I consider yet untold. And, you know, I gave uh, gave a couple of lectures revolving around the First World War largely yeah. to put publicize roundhouse history tours those lectures need to be turned into articles so there, yeah. there's all kinds of you know loose ends left to tie up and it's a very trite thing to say that you know you, you don't do anything in life without gaining some benefit from it. And I gained a tremendous about, amount of benefit from it. And equally, you know, when I was at home preparing tours, I was able to do things like go and drop my children off at school and pick them up from school. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, and make tea for them and be able to build models of Scarabray for the classroom <laughs> with, with my youngest, which mm. when I was an A-level teacher was something that yeah I would have made the time to do but mm. all the time I would have been thinking of well you know that model of Scarabray has cost me 12 essays that I could have marked well yeah. all of that had gone and and that was really really good and I think uh, as well it's quite an important stage of life for, for for my children so it was really really good to to have had the opportunity to be around on my terms for for, for that time so there all kinds of all kinds of benefits came from it you'll have to forgive me reminiscing here but I remember an occasion when you came into our history classroom and you apologized for not having marked our essays because you had to mend a toy fire engine instead <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, and uh, everyone was so touched by it. They just, you know, no one cared about the essays. <laughs> it's, yeah, um, the, it's, it's the evil of being a history teacher, isn't it? You've got this, and I, you, well, you'll know from, from, from teaching English that essay subjects produce this enormous mass of marking mm. and it's with you all the time. And I didn't realise how oppressive it was until I'd I'd escaped from it. I mean, I really I really miss the classroom. Uh, I, I miss it hugely, but I don't miss all those nights of staying up till one or two o'clock in the morning, marking on a very yeah. very regular basis. And I'm glad that's gone. If I could find the opportunity to teach without having to do that then that'd be great but somehow I don't think those opportunities those jobs exist really mm. any longer and I suspect it's probably also wired into the way I approach teaching anyhow. I'm still engaged with education I'm a, I'm a governor at a special school in Bradford Okay. I find that really, really interesting in terms of particularly observing the teaching and learning because it gets me thinking in all kinds of ways about the teaching that I used to do and ways of engaging. And, and again, that makes me really sort of hungry to get in a classroom, but mm. I'm always wary of um, that sort of slippery slope of 
of creating creating a job that just becomes unmanageable because of your expectations of yourself and the way you feel bound by a moral contract with your students to do the best you can for them to allow them to realize their potential which ultimately is probably an impossible aim but something that I think all teachers need to have and if you start losing that then you should leave the job really Mm. and looking at your career so far it's very varied and I've recently changed career and I was wondering was the variation something you envisaged maybe after you left uni or were you planning on something maybe only one or two jobs one side committed myself to teaching I, I thought yeah this is this is it for life yeah. and I understood you know like most teachers I'd be moving from job to job but equally I've always always believed as a teacher that it takes you three years to become properly useful in your establishment to actually learn the establishment and to therefore become confident about what you're doing so I stayed in a lot of the places even where I was part-time I stayed for quite a few years and obviously at Greenhead I was there for 11 years but it reached the point I think with class sizes particularly at Greenhead when my classes were up at 26 that Mm. I thought I can't teach A-level history the way I think my students deserve to be taught. Mm. There were just too many compromises that were being expected with groups of that size. And that's what I found so disillusioning, really. And Mm. that was one of the most important forces in making me decide to take the voluntary severance. I remembered very much what uh, Fanny Walshaw had said when she she left a second in in department to become a teaching assistant uh, in, in one of the schools up the road from Greenhead. And she just said, I want to leave while I'm still good at it, while I can still do it. You know, I, I didn't want to, I, I felt very much that way that I didn't want to become one of those teachers who was just slowly declining and finding real difficulty coping. And then when you finally decide to call it a day, it's because you're very, very clearly a spent force. I wanted to, to leave while I could still get away with pretending that I knew what I was doing and I was in control <laughs> of things. Uh, and that was, that was quite an, an important issue for me. Also, remembering the 1980s, I was very much aware that when places ask for voluntary severance or voluntary redundancy, the next time round, they don't ask. And the next time round, they certainly don't make the offer they made the first time round. And Greenhead, I think, was a wonderful place with a superb ethos. And it still has some absolutely superb teachers and human Mm -hmm. beings working there. But I feel that the, uh, the rules of engagement change so much in yeah. the wake of Michael Gove's appointment that mm. 
the job I wanted to do for my students became an impossibility and it felt in many ways as though financially we were being punished for delivering excellence in the public sector and mm. I thought you know I'm, I'm in my late 40s I can't do this for another 20 years I can't if I have to keep fighting this for another 20 years I'll, I'll become quite a quite an embittered and worn out person and and historians are cynical enough as it is anyway without <laughs> without having all that added on and just maybe one last question on the tours is it is roundhouse history abandoned or is there any chance that you would pick up strands of it again i'm still on the books of the international guild for battlefield guides uh, which allows me to keep a foot in the tour guiding camp. I would very much love people to come to me and say, can you please organise a tour? I had to turn down a a tour recently, uh, which I was very, very sad about. It was for a group of senior citizens to take Mm -hmm. them to some places in northern France. Mm -hmm. And... I simply had to turn them down because I don't know what my rules of employment will be on the mm. continent uh, in two years' time. Yeah, I mean, if I get the opportunity to to take groups around, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, I really miss taking people mm. in the outdoors and explaining the past to them and opening their eyes to the world that existed around them and hopefully putting them in a position where they'll they'll always stop and think about what went on on the ground where they're currently putting their feet and think about what went on there in the past and why things are the shape they are and turn them into the kind of people who sit on the top deck of the bus and look at the buildings above the shops and think what used to go on in there why is that there why is it that shape you know why is this bit of leeds called whatever it's called where's this name come from what does it tell me i remember um many many years ago when i was i suppose in my third year of secondary school uh, a geography teacher laughing about how one of his junior members of staff had uh, left teaching in order to become an accountant and within two years was teaching again and said quite simply I don't care about the money you know being an accountant gave me an income that I could never have dreamed of as a teacher but actually once once you've been in the classroom, once you've got the bug, you, you're stuffed, you know, that's, <laughs> it, it, it's got you for life. 